Good morning, everybody. If you can open your Bibles, uh, or as one guy said, uh, he said, I've been waiting to say this forever, you, please turn in your digital devices uh, to uh, Ecclesiastes. If you're new uh, to EP, uh, we have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an Old Testament book, so you will find it uh, on the first half of your Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you, or you can turn to just page 707 to follow along. Chapter 7 is an answer to a question that is raised at the very end of chapter 6. Chapter 6 raises the question, what wisdom can we find under the sun? What, that is, what does the world teach us about life? And so with that in mind, hear what the answer to that question is. Hear the word of the Lord. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of a wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of the knowledge is that wisdom perseveres, preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? May God help us to understand uh, this, his word. Our text answers the question, what's the world's wisdom with three uh, lessons. The first lesson is the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. If The second one is if you want the key to life, you must go to the locksmith who made the lock. And the second lesson the world teaches us, you cannot straighten what has been made crooked. That is, the world gives us a coffin, it tells us about a key, and it identifies us as crooked sticks. So the first, the preacher turns our attention to the most unwelcome subject, our death. The day of your death is better than the day of your birth. I remember the first person I ever saw uh, uh, not alive. He had passed away, was my grandfather. I was about six years old. When, we were, when I was about three or four years old, my family moved from the west coast to the east coast to take care of my uh, dying grandfather. And three, two or three years later, he passed away. And I, and I remember because my dad is buried in the same place that my grandfather is. And, and my name is the same as, all, as both of those men. And it's ironic or, or, or arresting to see your name twice on tombstones. 
I remember it's another 20, almost 30 years before I see my next uh, person uh, die. I was uh, about a 30, a brand a new pastor, and this young 16-year-old who had just gotten his driver's license the day before, he got up on Saturday morning to take his uh, uh, SATs, and while he was leaving his neighborhood, which was under construction, a dump truck uh, just plowed into his car. And so his parents had to make the awful decision to... Uh, turn off the machines because he had already gone, but his heart was still working. What a gut-wrenching. I would have never thought growing up that my profession would enter into the house of mourning where people die. I've seen outside of those of you who have been in the military and in law enforcement and the medical world, I would have never guessed the pastorate had so much death in it. A hundred years ago, if someone passed away, almost everyone who passed away passed away in their home. There would have been surely a viewing or a wake where friends and family would have come by and seen the dead body. A hundred years ago, everyone saw death personally. Today, 70% of us will die in a hospital. Our lives lack contact with death. Except on the small screen or in the big screen, you and I do not see much death in our lifetime. And I believe the writer of Ecclesiastes saying that is impoverishes our souls. How? Because you and I don't think about death much. Not our death. Can you imagine in the 21st century if the the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards were to preach his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. When he first uh, preached that sermon, he had taken over his uh, father-in-law's church up in uh, Massachusetts and he preached this sermon. And and, and Jonathan Edwards had a very uh, common practice to write his sermons, why we have them, in uh, word for word. And then he would read them. And because he was a Puritan, he often read them very pedantically, very slowly and painfully. And they were typically an hour to an hour hour and a half in length. And that's the way the sermon uh, centers in the hands of of an angry guard where he talked about death and life after death and in the facement of judgment. And when that sermon was first read to his congregation, the congregation cried out, what must I do to be saved? Can you imagine that being read today in the 21st century where we don't have much context for death? Would anyone cry out? What must I do to be saved? Because we just don't think about death a whole lot anymore. The truth is, and and this might be the greatest surprise, is that I'm going to die. But so are you. Everyone in this room will die. Let that fact shape us. Let that reality sink in and shape our priorities, our goals, our ambitions, and our expectations. You and I live a very brief life, but often we don't act like it. 
The writer makes three comparisons beginning in verse 2, 3, and 4. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. In verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. And in verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of myrrh. The word mirth is the word laughter. He's not saying it is more enjoyable to go into the house of mourning than it is to go into the house of party. That's not what he means. He just says that it's more profitable. You have the opportunity to learn something from death that you can't learn from birth. Birth is about potential. It's about the future. A death is about the present. It is about where we are. And that's why we can learn lessons. What can we learn from death? Two things. First, we learn that death proves something has gone horribly wrong. When we see the body, we realize that something is not going the way it was meant to be. Grief reminds us that death is our enemy, not our friend. It is not the circle of life. It is not the way things ought to be. We learn that in the garden after Adam and Eve rebelled against God upon this day. You shall surely die. Because death separates us. It separates us from the living. That's why we grieve. Because we've lost something. Whether we're the one who dies or the one who uh, loves the person who dies, we're being separated from the land of the living. But that's tragically the bad news but the good news is death reminds us that it can be defeated itself the death of death because someone has come jesus christ who was born to die we don't tend to think of it that way but christmas is not about the birth it is about the beginning of the death see we don't tend to think of jesus suffering as the beginning we tend to think of Jesus' suffering as the end. That the, the last week, particularly the cross, is the suffering of Jesus. But the whole thing, he left his kingdom. He left the throne to come here in order to die. And that because of that, when he goes to the cross, we can see the separation because the words he utters from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was willing to be separated for us so that we would not have to be separated from God. Jesus has entered into the house of mourning of this world with all of its brokenness and all of its frustration. He's entered in, why? So that we might enter in his house of of mirth, his house of laughter. If we learn these lessons, then death can change how we live. We no longer have to fear death. All death can do to a Christian is usher in more life than we have ever known. And this sends us back into the house of mourning. Not because it's our duty. That would be horrible if that if we thought the only reason to go into someone else's suffering, enter into someone else's uh, uh, troubles, is because it's the Christian duty. No, we go in because we love, because we've been loved. It is because Jesus entered into our house of mourning, we can enter into other people's houses of mourning. Our heart is for those who are truly suffering. 
because their inward and outward suffering are only pictures of the suffering of the whole world for which Christ came. That's the good news that the world does teach us about death. But secondly, everything is so messed up in our world. Life is so incredibly frustrating. Nothing seems to work the way it was intended to go. I, just the other day, I go to get gas in my car, and I, you know, you have to put your little credit card in before they'll let you have gas, and, 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 it, and it says it can't read the card, so I flip it and turn it around, and over and over again, it finally gives up and says, please see the cashier. I don't want to see the cashier. That's so 1990s. Can they not make the machine work to read the card? Life is so frustrating. Our world is so broken. Why do we get so frustrated? Because life has lost its key. There was a key to life at one time that allowed us to live in this world without frustration. But now frustration is our definition of our broken world. Because the key is lost. Walker Percy asked this question, how do we live from one ordinary moment to the next on a Wednesday afternoon? And he says, we've only got two options. This is the preacher, not Walker Percy. We've got two options. One's called folly, one's called wisdom. One's the way of the fool, one's the way of the wise. What is folly? It's trying to live without God. That's the definition of pride. Pride is our attempt to live this life without the key. Trying to make sense of the frustrated, broken world that we live in without God. But pride, according to verse 8, leads to impatience. It's a one-way ticket to crazy town. To try to live in God's world without God. Do you hear the irony of that? To try to live in God's world without God is why we're so impatient and frustrated with our world. The consequences of pride is that we're impatient with God. God, why didn't you make this work well? Why didn't this work out? I I was good. I did it the right way, but you still didn't make it work out for me or with others because they're the problem. You ever notice that about today's culture and it's come into the church that if there's a problem, it must be someone else's fault. That's so much into the culture. The, 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 the red states blame the blue states and the blue states blame the red states. And if you happen to be in the purple state, you get to blame everybody, including yourself. Don't you see that's the way it is? It's mom's fault. It's dad's fault. No, it's my fault. And then often, this horrible pride of trying to live without God when it's ultimately frustrating, you can't work it out because life is so hard. The only solution is to quit. Maybe quit what God has called you to do, but simply quit in life. And that might mean go live off on a hermit or, or it just may mean checking out a life altogether. I had a friend in St. Louis and what he wrote in his suicide letter was this. Life is, life is going to be easier than living in this world. Death is going to be easier than living in this world. You hear what he's saying? He's, he's saying life is so hard that the only thing that I can think of to make it easy 
for my friends, my family, my church, and for myself is for me to be the one who quits. But he goes on and says that impatience leads to anger in verse 9. Anger, when things don't go the way one perceives the way they should go. We rage when we attempt to control what cannot be controlled by man, which is most things. I can't even get my electric toothbrush to work in the morning. The scenarios are almost endless in our lives. You climb into the car when the first winter frost comes in, it won't turn over. If you had planned for it, you'd have a battery ready. But of course you don't. Anger, it says, lodges where? In the heart. Isn't that interesting that when we get angry because we're impatient, because we're trying to live in this world without its key, ultimately it lodges in the heart and anger becomes formative in our lives. It will make you into someone you never wanted to be. Never someone you dreamt you would become. But anger has a way of doing that because it doesn't lodge in your mind. It lodges into your heart, into what you believe. All because we refuse to accept we are not in control. And an anger leads somewhere too. Verse 10, don't say why we're the former days better than these. Now, nostalgia takes an older version and a younger version. Isn't that interesting that nostalgia just doesn't affect older people? But that particular disease, that particular want, affects older people and younger people in two different ways. Older people, nostalgia goes like this. Young people used to respect older people. I want you to understand something, younger people. Every generation has said that about the previous generation. I'm old enough to know. Because not only have I uttered it, I have also been called that. Every generation. Millennials are, are lazy. They want everything handed to them. You are not, if you're a millennial or you're a parent of a millennial, they are not the first people that has ever been said about. I wish things were like the good old days. You know, Bono has a great quote about this. He said, you can glorify the past when your future dries up. Here's what we're really saying when we long for the good old days. Back when I was pretty. Back when I was fast. Back when I had power. We form of an escaping the present is what we do by nostalgia. We're all refusing to live in the present where the world is hard. Where suffering exists. Where the world, where your heart is broken. So we escape to the past where we remember all the good things and none of the bad things. Who wants to go back to the time where you had to go to the toilet outside? How many people want to go back to the past where you had to draw water every day and take cold baths instead of warm? But somehow we've longed for those and nostalgia will keep you from the very people and opportunities that are right in front of you as you long to go back. But there's another kind of nostalgia, isn't there, that particularly afflicts young people. 
And that is dreaming about the future at the expense of living in the present. It too distracts us from living in this hard, broken world. As frustrating as it is, as long as we're thinking, man, when I finally get my degree, I'm going to get that job that I've always wanted. And when I get that job, it's going to give me everything that I have ever wanted. Meanwhile, all the brokenness and all the hurt and all the relationships are right here, right in front of us. There is a kind of nostalgia that afflicts all of us. And the writer says that's foolish thinking. And he, and he contrasts that with wisdom in verse 12. For the protection of the wisdom is like the protection of money. That is its treasure. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. The wise person owns the reality that we are not in control and that God is. By faith, we begin to trust our heavenly father. The book of Ecclesiastes is the journal of a search for the key of life. And there is no key under the sun because life has lost its key back in the garden. That's why one commentator, Stafford Wright, says, if you want to find the key to life, you must go to the locksmith who made the lock. He made us and he made this world and therefore he has the master key. Wisdom is the humility to admit that you are not God and that there is one and he is not you. And trying to live your life in light of that reality is the Christian faith. In the light of the reality that you're not in control, that this is not your church, that this is not your world, that this is not your city, that this is not your nation, that this is our Father's world. He made it, He owns it, He sustains it, and He will make it new. Thank God it's not us. Because the mess that it's in was because of us. The enlightenment was wrong. We can't reason our way out of it. The emotional movement of the 20th and 21st century is also wrong. That we can't deny the reality that everything is broken because of us. We need to live in light of that there's a good, good father who loves his world more than we do and loves us more than we love ourselves. Wisdom is not primarily a principle. It is primarily a person who has come into our house of mourning so that we can go to the house of mirth. Which brings us to the last lesson the world teaches. And that is found in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Everyone in this room, everyone you'll ever meet on the street, everyone that exists, who have ever existed since the garden, has known and been touched by human suffering. Whether that's a chronic illness, depression, anxiety, personal betrayal, destructive sins, grieving loss, and sorrow. Thomas Boston, who was also a Puritan a pastor, had 10 children. It was very common in the ancient, uh, when I say ancient, the Puritan days, for them to have lots and lots of children. So, so it wasn't uncommon to have 10. What was, unco- was also not uncommon is that most of them died. Six of his 10 children died in infancy. Two of them bore the name Ebenezer. 
That is, one was born, died, and he named the next one Ebenezer in his place. Can you imagine carrying your dead brother's name? And to carry the name that literally means the Lord has helped us. The Lord has helped me. In his memoir, this is what Thomas Boston said about the death of his two sons, Ebenezer. It pleased the Lord that he also has removed from me my love. Can you imagine? I can't. I can't imagine losing one son, but two. Everyone has been made crooked. There's no one in this room who is not in this life that has some crookedness about their life. That's why the preacher calls us a crooked stick. If your life is crooked and we all are, you are in good company. But here's the part he's trying to get across, not the fact that we're all crooked, although in the 21st century that seems to be something that we have to grapple with because we're denying the reality that we're crooked. But the thing that he's trying to draw attention to is not that we're crooked, he just assumes you understand that is that you cannot straighten what has been made crooked. Please don't miss that. We're constantly trying to fix one another. We're trying to fix ourselves. We're going from conferences to podcasts to to magazines to self-help books, all trying to straighten ourselves out or straighten someone else out. And here's the writer says, you cannot straighten what God has made crooked. I want to be fixed. Who doesn't want to be fixed? I was born with crooked feet. I don't know if you've noticed that, but on Thursday, I'm going to have them fix one of them because the pain's just gotten too big. And so for about six weeks, I'll have to figure out how to get up here and sit down while they heal because they're going to put a couple of screws to straighten the foot out. And then after that one heals, I'll get the other one done. That sounds easy to fix, relatively. But there are things about me that are crooked, that can't be so easily fixed. That no surgeon is going to be able to come in. No, no psychologist, no, no a Christian worker is going to be able to come and fix. And sometimes the, what's going on inside comes out outside. You ever notice that about us? We can't, whatever is crooked on the inside shows up on the outside. One of them is, if you ever see me walk down the hall or the street, I'm always bent over looking down. I have these friends who see that and they they know there's something wrong with it. Even God said, look up, lift your heads. I know that verse, love that verse. But left to myself, I'm always looking down. Part of that is from years and years and life and life of thinking so little of myself. And so I'm always looking down, bowing my head. That's not going to change just because you tell me to lift my head. I appreciate you telling me to do that. That's going to take me being made completely new. That happens when Christ returns. There is one who straightens all the crooked sticks. The answer to verse 13 is not no one. Consider the work of God. There is one. There is one who has made the crooked in order to straighten what is crooked about us in our world. Imagine... The crookedness of us is actually bringing glory to God because he's going to make us straight. If he left us crooked forever, it wouldn't be as glorious 
as sending his son back here to make all things new, straighten all the crookedness. We are going to spend eternity thanking God for all of the straightening that he has done in our lives, in the lives of people we've known and loved. Imagine the person, not even yourself right now, the person that you love, that you know is so crooked, they've been crooked because something has happened to them, something chemically is wrong in them, something is broken in their DNA, all kinds of crookedness. Imagine spending eternity with them straight. What is our, going to be our response? But to glorify the one who has straightened them. That's where we're going. We're going to a place where everyone who has had a broken DNA or a broken body or a broken mind are all going to be straight. The new heavens and the new earth is for straight people. I don't mean that the way you took it. Truly, miracles do happen, and some parts of us do get straightened out on this side of heaven. And I love that about, he gives us enough glimpses of resurrection that we can hope for the ultimate resurrection. I appreciate that. Some of you bear those stories. You, you were alcoholics and, and he straightened that out. Or, or, or maybe uh, you had a broken relationships with your family, but you have a very beautiful family. And, and those are great stories. And I love to hear those stories. Um, but they're only partial stories. They're appetizers. They're to make us want more of the resurrection story where everything is going to be made new including those credit card uh, machines at the gas station, are going to work properly. They're not going to ask you to come in to see the cashier. One day, I'll even walk with my head up. Because that which bows it now will be straight. Will that be, is that what you long for? This is the lessons of the world if we're willing to open our eyes and see so that we may long for what God might do in us. That's worship. That's what we do on Sunday. We come in here and anticipate what he might do now and what he will do then. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this glorious message of the gospel for our hearts. The crooked people, we are the collection of the crooked sticks. We long for the day when you send Jesus back and make everything straight. Oh, we want that so much. I want that so much. I'm tired of being frustrated. I'm tired of quitting. I'm tired of being crooked. I can only tolerate so much pain, so much suffering. And that's true for everybody in the room. And so we long for you to end that. May you send your son back and make all things new. I pray, Heavenly Father, until that day we might encourage one another with this good news. He is coming back. He who has already entered the house of mourning of this world so that we might go into the house of mirth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.